everybody, welcome to another episode of Coffee and Clarks. I'm Javian. I'm Tyler. And today we have a very, very special guest joining us today. He's taking time out of his very, very busy schedule. Uh, Tyler and I call him the GOAT, a.k.a. Prof, a.k.a. the true one. <laughs> and he is professor of trumpet at Florida State University, uh, where Tyler and I both study. So we want to take the moment and welcome the Dr. Christopher Moore. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Moore. Yeah. Ah, thank you. This is a great opportunity. Love it. I've been loving your podcasts, and it's quite an honor to be included in your program. Oh, thank you so much. Um, before we get into you know our questions for you, we have to ask, because it's kind of part of our show, is are you drinking any coffee today? I am drinking some coffee this morning. This oh, is really? one of my favorite mugs. Oh, let's see the mug. Okay. <laughs> Relax. Relax. Oh. <laughs> really important. I like nice. that. I like part, that. Part of the theme of the of the discussion today. Yes, relax. relax. Awesome. Okay. Okay. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, I'm having some Starbucks French roast this morning. <laughs> nice. Nice. I used to work at Starbucks, so I know that roast very well. <laughs> uh, Tyler, what are you drinking? All right. So I got a new bag this week. Ethiopia Artie, it's a light roast. Some of the flavor notes are blueberry, floral. It's very sweet. It's nice, pretty good. And again, it's from Swings Coffee. Swings Coffee, okay. Yeah. What about you? Um, so last episode I talked about um, getting some beans from Bold Bean in Jacksonville. Um, so I'm actually on my last, this is like it, this is the last beans that I had in the bag. Um, so it's that same Guatemalan um, blend, and it kind of has that dry apple, pie spice, uh, Charleston true. So it's, it's a medium blend, so it's not too acidic. It's still very kind of fruity, and but it's really, really good. So after the, today, I'm going to be investing in a new bag of beans, so I'm excited about that. Um, there you go. So that's our coffee talk for today. So let's get into some really, really important questions. Um, that I have, and I'm sure uh, Tyler has for himself. Uh, so Dr. Moore, you've had, I would say, I think you've had a, a great career and have, have had a lot of success over the years. So could you tell us, um, like, how did you get to the place that you are today? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so even before that, how did you get started? Like, how did yeah, you get how started you get playing? Started? Like playing the trumpet? Yeah. Were you like fifth grade, sixth grade? Yeah, it was, uh, I was 10 years old in, um, I must have been, I think I was in sixth grade. And my, my, uh, my beginning is probably no different than most everybody else in that, um, you know, we kind of went to the petting zoo to uh, check out all the instruments. And, for, and I have two older sisters, so they were already involved in music. Uh, so I was kind of around it already. My, um, my father was and still is a huge classical music buff. And so I grew up listening to classical music on vinyl way back when. And um, so that kind of shaped 
my direction in regards to a more classically oriented uh, direction. But I remember going to the, looking at all the instruments and I really wanted to play saxophone. That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> I was really into the sax and um, my parents said, no, that's too expensive. We can't afford a saxophone, but we can afford a trumpet. So you're gonna play the trumpet. So that's what I did. So I, I got into beginning band and, um, you know, like, like most students, I played recorder at the beginning or what we had, I don't know if they still have them, flutophones is what they call them. They were these little white plastic things where you learn how to, how to, uh, how to count and, and pitch and all of that. And I remember uh, being in beginning band and um, I was the only trumpet player that couldn't get a sound out of all, all my peers. I couldn't get a sound out. And so the, uh, the, the um, intern at the time, his name is Joe Powell. He took me in the back room. He was a trumpet player himself and he taught me how to play. And without his guidance, I would not be where I am today. So he, he, Took me in the back room. He taught me how to play it. He was my trumpet teacher all the way through high school. And um, I don't want to get ahead of all the questions, but one of the main keys that I believe to my success was, was that teaching because he taught me fundamentals. That's what, that's what we did. And he taught me um, how to play Clark studies and how to articulate and flexibility. And we worked out of the Arbin and, you know, without his guidance, there's no way that I would have had the success that I had. Wow. I had no idea. Uh, well, that's pretty cool. Since he, he took you up through high school. So what type of things as a undergrad, I know you, you did your undergrad at FSU. Um, you studied with Brian Golf. So, what type of things as an undergraduate and a grad student for that matter, did you do to kind of take the next step in your playing? Well, I practiced a lot <laughs> and I can't say that enough. I, I lived in a practice room and you know, this is something that I instill in my students all the time. There, there was something in me that drove me. And I believe that's really key to all student success. Well, the key to anybody's success, regardless of what business, whether it's music or, or finance or medicine or whatever it is you choose to do with your life. But I was driven to be the best player that I could be. That was my un, that was my desire every day when I woke up. And so when people say, what do you think led to your success? I think that one aspect of that is, is very simply, I practice all the time. So people say to me, well, like, how much should I practice? As much as you possibly can without injuring yourself, of course. But for me, that was like, injury wasn't even a thing back then. And I never worried about it because I was playing the trumpet all day. So I never really had a point where I was worried about, I mean, I would get tired, but it was, physiologically I'm, I'm set up that I could take that abuse on my face, you know, day in and day out. So one of the first things is that I, I practiced a lot. I, um, 
spent a lot of, t- I, I, I spent a lot of time around really great players. And for me, when I was at FSU, um, I hung out with all the grad students. And so like when you guys were grads at FSU and the undergrads would hang out with you, you know what that's like. If you have a, you, you have a, a young undergrad who wants you to hear them play or just wants you to work with them. Um, I was that kid and the grads became my best friends. So they were, you know, oftentimes a lot older than me, but I ended up hanging out with them and they kind of took me under their wing because I showed this interest and we would always be downstairs practicing. So, you know, they were there all the time and I'd be there all the time and we'd be there 10, 11 o'clock at night. You know, I'll remember coming out in the hall, uh, Rich Stolzel, who now teaches at McGill, he went to FSU. He was a grad student while I was there. And he'd come out in the hall and he'd have eight new mouthpieces or 10 new lead pipes or whatever. He'd want me to hear him play. I had really great mentors, like my really close friend, Michael Miles, took me under his wing and taught me. They, they just taught me things that, you know, I was with Professor Goff and that was great, but I spent most of my time down in that basement just playing. Um, and so for me, that was really key. Um, I also did a lot of competitions when I was an undergraduate and that's, you know, Professor Goff, uh, inspired me to compete. And, you know, I did the MTNA competitions almost every year that I was at FSU. Um, I did all of the ITG competitions. Uh, I would spend a lot, I, I learned very early on how to record these competitions and that's back when we had reel to reel and so we i would record uh my etude material and solo material in opperman that's back in the day when we could actually get in there (laughs) and um i i remember uh recording like charlier etudes and on reel to reel and then uh, i would hire a technician one of the one of the guys who would who would sit there with the reel and go back and forth and do some editing and, and whatever had to be done so that uh, I could have a successful tape. And um, all those, all the competitions that I did, I believe, well, I know they were, they, they were extraordinarily important for my success. Um, I was successful at, at many of the competitions, not all of them, not all the time, but, but I was putting myself out there um and that's what drove me those those competitions i always had a goal it was like i had this competition to do and this thing to get ready for and it was more than just getting ready for your weekly lesson but i always had this 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 goal that was that i could see that i wanted to to obtain and i was driven by that i don't know why I just was. Um, so I think it was a combination of having really great mentors, people that that would that would help me and inspire me. And then at the same time, I had these concrete goals that I would go after. And, um, and then at the same time, uh, something that I, I believe is really important is listening. I can't say that enough. And I tell students all the time that I, I would live in a practice room, literally. I would put all my stuff in there in the morning. I'd go practice. 
I'd go to class, I'd come back, I'd practice, and if I ran out of chops, I'd go to the music library and check out a, an album and listen to, to trumpet music. And then I'd go back and practice. And it, it's not that I didn't have a great social life, because I did, but you, there's a time for that. And, and for me, uh, this, this was my existence. Um, was, 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 I know that's a long-winded answer, but that's, uh, that's what I believe really kept me going um, in, in undergraduate school. So after undergrad, you went to go get your master's, right? How did you make that choice, picking schools and, and finding out what would be the good fit? Well, like, like many students, I had a list of schools that I had Professor Goff to help me pick out. One of my dream schools was Northwestern. I wanted to study with Chickawins, right? Who didn't? All right. Guess what? I didn't get in. I remember my audition. It was short and sweet. <laughs> and and I, I didn't get in. Uh, I wanted to go to the University of Michigan and study with Armando Gatala. I remember that audition. Um, and I don't remember whether I got in or not, but, I, but it didn't work out. Uh, I do remember him making me transpose at sight and, and how well that did not go. So <laughs> it had something to do with it. Uh, I also auditioned uh, at Indiana. Um, and I believe I did get accepted, but I'm not sure if, if, if it was a money thing or something of that sort. Um, and then those were my three big schools that, that I wanted to do. And then um, uh, out of nowhere came uh, this announcement for an assistantship at University of New Mexico. And Professor Goff was friends with Jeff Piper and uh, I submitted my recording and they invited me to come out and audition. And uh, at that time, that assistantship involved playing with the faculty brass quintet and their, their brass quintet was very active. Um, this is in the late eighties. And um, they were actually, there were a lot of faculty brass quintets back then doing a lot of really, really cool things. I mean, FSU had one, um, uh, University of Wisconsin with John Ailey had one, uh, but the New Mexico Brass Quintet was really well known for commissioning music and making CDs and going to Europe. And, and so, uh, so I flew out there, I'll never forget my audition and um, it was really successful. And so they offered me an assistantship, which was everything paid for. And so it was kind of a no brainer uh, to go do that. And it was a smaller school. I felt really comfortable and I was going to be able to play on a, in a faculty quintet, which I thought was really cool. Um, so that's where I ended up. I ended up uh, packing up the uh, little U-Haul, leaving Tally and heading out to the Southwest where I'd never been in my life. Yeah. So what are some takeaways from your master's? I mean, you talked about some of the things that you learned in your undergrad and so did you have any of those kind of moments in your master's? Oh yeah, that was a learning curve. That's for sure. Cause I suddenly am in this faculty group and I'm, I'm swimming, man. And so I had to recalibrate 
what I was doing, um, it was a challenge every day because they played at a very high level. Um, and so I, I had to get, get myself in gear so I could keep up. Uh, they had a really busy touring schedule. I went to Europe three times with them. Uh, they commissioned new works all the time. So we were working with composers that would come in and play new works. Um, I took it upon myself and I organized a tour actually for the group of Florida. And so that was really a big thing for me to do. Uh, I would go, I would make posters. I would be the publicity guy. This is before the internet. So uh, I would be the guy who was putting all this together at the copy shop and I'd be making all the publicity announcements and I would be doing press releases and things of this sort. And, you know, I was like, what, 20 years old doing all this for, for, the, for the group. Um, but it was a great opportunity, right? That, that, was, that was really cool. Um, and I'd never toured before, you know, ridden in a van with a bunch of guys and going all over New Mexico, which is, you know, all desert, um, to do high school trips and things like that. And that's where I learned how to do a lot of that. Um, but in addition to that, my assistantship included teaching music theory to non-majors. So I had to teach at eight o'clock every morning. Mm. Uh, scales and chords and key signatures and intervals to rock guitar players and drummers and they were taking it as an elective you know uh, but that's what I had to do I had to get there and, and teach that eight o'clock class I had to make tests I had to you know uh, do all the grading I had like 40 kids in my class so that was part of my responsibility and then I taught some trumpet students too um, so it was kind of like, it's a small enough school and Javian knows this, having gone there that, you know, they can tell you to do this, that, and the other, and you go and do it. So, um, so for me, all of that was, um, it was work experience that I was getting at a very young age, you know, uh, and the same way there, you know, I, I mean, I had a lot more responsibility, but. I, I still had to play. And so I still do competitions. I, uh, I did the MTNA competition when I was there. I made nationals there. And I still participated in um, things like the Ellsworth Smith competition and ITG and, and all of that. So um, I was still doing that. And, um, you know, I learned a lot of valuable lessons there. And I, I'll never forget, I auditioned for a position in the New Mexico Symphony uh, it, was one, it was like my first real audition, and I didn't advance, and I was crushed. I was so sad and depressed, and I moped around for a week, and I oh, asked, oh man, yeah, and I asked my mentors, like, Carl Hinterbickler was the trombone teacher there, and he kind of took me under his wing, and I'm like, what did I do wrong? I'm a horrible trumpet player. <laughs> and, you know, it was like my first major defeat. And it was like, all right, this is what you signed up for. You better get used to it. You're going to get a lot more no's than you get yes. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, but I'll never forget how devastated I was, you know, with, with that. Um, but, you know, that's all, it's all part of the experience. So at that point, was 
performing full time kind of the thing you wanted to do or like now that you have some of this teaching experience under your belt and kind of having interactions with the faculty did you think oh maybe like teaching at the college level university level would be something that i might want to do because they can still perform actively too it's like a nice little balance i mean what were kind of your thoughts as you're like in your masters about direction and path yeah for me it was I just wanted to be employed in the business. So if I think university teaching was part of what I thought I wanted to do, but I think my main goal, to be honest, was to get a playing job. That was what was in my head. Um, and so I did a number of military band auditions. Um, I made the finals for the Coast Guard band and flew out to New London. I'll never, I, like all of these audition experiences, I will never forget because they were all so invaluable. But when I was in my last year at New Mexico, I flew out to New London and took that audition and it was the, the quickest 10 minutes of my life. I remember going out on stage and I worked on the list and I went out and played and then they, they're like, sorry, you didn't advance. So next thing you know, I'm in my car heading back to the airport. And um, I also auditioned uh, for the Air Force and made the finals there. And um, uh, I, I advanced, but, but back then there were issues, not issues, but to be honest, I was overweight. And so they had a weight restriction, but they didn't tell you until you got there. So in, now where they take your profile picture and you got to do maps and all this other stuff before you, before you make final, before they can advance you, that, that was way back when, when they didn't do all of that. So, um, so if you were overweight or whatever, and you did do well, then sometimes they would just say, sorry, you, just, you don't meet the profile that we're looking for. Um, so I was doing these military band auditions and I, like I said, I did a couple of orchestral auditions and, um, and it wasn't until I'm, I'm walking down the hall and I'm going to Jeff Piper's office for a lesson. And the band director at the time at New Mexico, his name is Greg Clemens. And Greg now is in Chicago um, at, a, at another school. But Greg says, hey, Chris. And Greg was a trumpet player himself. And he, and he said, do you, do you have anything lined up for next year yet? And I said, no. And he said, you know, this, this job application came through, um, came through my desk and, and I had been applying for jobs, university jobs at the time too. Jobs I had no business. Like I applied for Indiana, right? <laughs> I mean, I, nice. I, was bliss. I was, I was applying for everything under the sun. And, um, and it was this, this flyer for, Morningside College, a school that I'd never heard of in the middle of Iowa. And it was, uh, it was, this was like May, man. I had nothing going on. I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, I'm working three jobs trying to keep my life together and I'm poor and hanging on by a thread. And this job application comes through and I had all my stuff ready. I'd already been applying for jobs. So I just sent them my stuff and lo and behold, man, the next week my phone lights up and they called me like three times asking me if I could do this, this, and this, and this, and this, anything but trumpet. And I just kept saying, yeah, I'll do it. And they finally 
I mean, you guys know how that is. And so they finally flew me out. I'd never been to Iowa in my life. And uh, I think I was the only one they interviewed because it was a last minute thing. And they hired me on the spot after my interview. And so that the rest of that's kind of history. That's like where I started my, my collegiate career and uh, moved to Iowa. And, uh, that was so, that was my you know after a master's degree which is unheard of these days right so that was uh, that I was 24 when I got that job not much older than some of the students I, mean, I know right crazy yeah. yeah what were some of your duties since they were asking you about so many different things oh they they would call me up this is before they had me come out and they said well would you be willing to run the jazz program? I'd never run a jazz program in my life. I said, sure, why not? And they said, well, will you teach advanced music theory and ear training? Okay, that's fine. So will you teach music a priest? Okay. Can you help out with the marching band? Sure, why not? So every, you know, they would keep calling with all these duties and I just kept saying, yeah, I'll do it. You know, you gotta be crazy to say no. You need a job, right? And so sure enough, that's what the job was. I mean, it was just about, I taught all the brass. I taught, um, I taught music appreciate to non-majors. I, I taught music theory. I taught uh, ear training, God forbid. Uh, I ran the jazz program. I put together a, a major jazz festival that they had every year, which is where I got to meet really, really fine players and jazz musicians because I had kind of this carte blanche credit card where I could like hire these people and they'd come from all over the country to Sioux City, Iowa uh, and to be in my jazz festival. And so that, you know, it was, it, my first job was an extraordinary experience. It really was. Um, one that, um, not something I would want to do at my age now, but when I was at that age and had the energy to do it, that's what you do. So that's, that's, that's what that was. And how long did you teach at Morningside? I was there for four years. Yeah, I was there for four years. And, and the way that that worked for me is that I knew I wasn't gonna stay there because that job was killing me. Um, I worked probably 80 or 90 hours a week. And my wife says that she never saw me. Um, I don't remember because it's kind of like a blur. I was just doing the job. Um, but I knew I didn't, I knew I, I, I knew that I couldn't keep doing that and that I wanted to make music at a high level and I wanted to teach at a higher level. And I knew two things had to happen. And I know I've told you guys this story, but I, somehow I knew two things. Well, I knew because I was applying for things and not getting any bites. So I talked to people in the business and I said, what do I need to do? And they said, you need to get a playing job and you need to get a doctorate if that's what you want. So those were my two goals were to get a doctorate and to get a playing job. And so when the time came and I knew it was time to, to, to get my act together, I then started applying for doctoral programs. And I applied for three. 
I applied at Wisconsin with John Ailey. I applied at Arizona State, and I applied at Eastman. And those were the schools where everybody was getting work. So I knew that that's where I wanted to be. And uh, I got accepted to all three places. Um, at Wisconsin with Ailey, they did not have an assistantship available, so financially it wasn't a really good situation. At Arizona State, it just wasn't a good fit for me. And um, at least I didn't feel so at the time. And Eastman was a no-brainer. Um, my experience there was extraordinary. The time I had with Barbara in the audition and after changed my life. And even though it was the hardest of the three schools and the most expensive of the three schools, I knew that if I could make it through that program, that that's going to be a gold card. I just knew it. And so I went with my gut, and, and that's where I ended up going. And I took a leave of absence from morning psychology, but I knew I wasn't going back. So I just kind of kept that in my pocket in case. <laughs> smart, smart. So talk to us a little bit about that, like your time at Eastman, that transition from you know, working and, and being a professional and then now you're back in school. And then also, you know, now you're playing in studio class with 18 year olds and you're, you know, in your third, not, not in your thirties, but probably what, late twenties. Yeah. That was, at this uh, point. I went to Eastman in 90, um, 93. So I was in my late 20s. I was like 27, 28. Uh, it was the hardest thing I ever did. And um, to this day, it's still the hardest thing I ever did. Um, like you say, and you're, you're leading the question because you know the story a little bit, but at, I, you know, I've, I've, I tell my doctoral students this all the time that, that getting my doctorate at the age that I did in that atmosphere tested me more than anything else that I've ever had to do. And it was really, really great to be in that trumpet studio. It was an incredible experience. Chris Martin was a freshman when I was at Eastman. That's crazy. Really crazy. Chris Sala, who some of you may know, was there as well. Um, I don't know if you know the name Taga Larson. He plays in the Chicago Symphony. He was a student there at the time. Um, Paul Markello would come in and out because uh, he studied with Barb and Charlie. So he was very young in his career and, and he was in and out of there. So it was a studio of really crazy talented kids, right? And I'd been out working, like you say, I already have my master's, I've been working for four years, and I come into this situation where these young Wunder kids, man, are running around playing circles around me. And um, it was a humbling experience. And, but that was okay, because that's why I was there. I was there to learn how to play the trumpet. And 
the year that I spent with Barbara was transformative to my playing. It's what I needed at that time. I had been struggling um, with my playing. Uh, I still could play, you know. I mean, I, I knew I could get around the horn, but it wasn't it wasn't easy. I wasn't playing with finesse. I, I wasn't playing with ease. I was a bull in a china shop. Uh, I could make it through stuff, but it, you know, it just wasn't the elegance that I needed to have in my playing. And that's what I learned. Um, I learned how to play with greater finesse. I learned the concepts of playing with ease. It was, it was driven in my head every week that this is how you need to play. And it's not about how fast you play and how loud you play and what power you have, although those are all good things to have. But it's about how are you going to play with finesse and win a job. And that is what Barb and Charlie teach. Um, and that is, you drink the Kool-Aid, man, and you're in that, and you hear everyone play, and you see people winning jobs, and you're like, oh, yeah, this is the way it's got to be. Um, so for me, the studio environment and getting to know Barbara like I did, um, she treated me as an adult. She, she, you know, she, they gave me that assistantship. There was only one assistantship that year and they gave it to me. And she somehow trusted in me and believed in me and spent time talking to me on the phone for hours about my career and what I wanted to do and my potential for success and how I could have it. And uh, I, you know, I trusted her and, um, and I don't regret it. Um, now, the academic side of things and life at Eastman is very hard. It's cutthroat and um, it's, it's not warm and fuzzy. And uh, it's, it's a high level of expectation. And uh, that, that's fine. But, but it, when, you, when you sign up for it, you just got to realize what you're signing up for. Because I was thrown into classes that I was swimming, man. I was in over my head. And I had to find a way to survive it. Um, and that's, that taught me a lot of fortitude. There were times I wanted to quit. I just stayed with it, and uh, you know, fortunately for me, I got a job right away. So you know, I was able to—not fortunately, but it just worked out that way. So you know, my residence was one year that I was there. But you know, I feel like that experience has helped me relate with my graduate students and, and help them through um, the process. And understanding that it is a process and that your life will get better it's okay <laughs> you will survive and that and that you're in a place that people want you to survive and that you're in a place that people want you to succeed which is one of the great things about being here at FSU um, that you know the, the faculty here is is willing to work with you to make it happen um, that's that's not the case where I was and it, I don't mean it bad about Eastman. It's just that it's a different, it's different. It's, you know, I tell students that are auditioning to go wherever, it's, it's different. So, but that was my experience with, with Eastman. And yeah, it was, 
it was humbling for sure. So after you, you finished your time at Eastman, you said you got a, a job um, fairly quickly. What was that job and what was that transition like? Well, this was a job, um, you know, chamber music had become something that I really loved playing. And, and I kind of knew after I'd been at, at Albuquerque and, and playing in the faculty group there and doing a lot of chamber music after that, that it would be a dream of mine actually make a living playing chamber music you know and this was at a time when Canadian brass was kind of at their at their height and, and it actually seemed like a viable way to make a living um, and so there was an opening with this group called the chestnut brass company that had been around for a while and I had actually had a, a very close friend and colleague Dave Vining uh, trombonist who played in the group and um, so I, I knew about the group and I knew that they had been doing some things. And so they had a trumpet opening and I decided to go ahead and take the audition. So I got invited. Uh, I think they brought three or four of us in and uh, drove to Philadelphia from Rochester. And um, I had a really great audition. Um, and that audition involved not just playing, but you had to talk and you had to, because they, you know, interact with the audience. And so you had some memorized things that you had to do. I also had to um, do a little bit of playing on early instruments because that's one of the things that they do. Uh, they do new music all the time. They were commissioning really, really hard pieces. Um, and so that was part of the audition as well. Um, but I clicked with the members in the group. Um, like I said, I played well, had a really great audition and they hired me. Um, and we took the leap and uh, decided to, that this was part of the plan. The plan was you're gonna get your degree, you're gonna get a playing job. So it all made sense. There it was. So I need to go do this. Um, at that time, Chestnut was on the road about 150 days a year. Um, you had to move to Philadelphia. Uh, I was excited about that because I never lived in a big city. And I was like all about it, man. It's going to be great. I'm going to freelance. I'm going to play in the group. I'm going to travel the world. It's going to be fantastic. And so I was very excited about all of it. Um, and so we, we, when I say we, my wife and, and myself, we transplanted ourselves to, at least I did, she had to stay in Rochester for a semester, but um, moved to Philadelphia and, and dug in to, to that gig. Um, and I don't regret it at all. It, it ended up being a different situation than I thought it would be. But at, at the beginning, the, the, the fun was in the first year when I was traveling all over and learning how to survive on your own horn, learning how to play for audiences every night, people who are paying to hear you play, learning how to deal with your chops on the road, um, learning how to live with five people nonstop, um, learning about rehearsing efficiently and recording and making CDs and um, learning how to be poor and still stay positive about life um, 
there were a lot of lessons to that job. And I, I don't, I had a, that was an invaluable experience to me. I had many, many great experiences with that group. Awesome. And I, I guess I can share this, but I also know you got some pretty cool hardware <laughs> playing with Chestnut, right? Yeah, I was very fortunate. Yes. <laughs> very fortunate to win a Grammy with that group. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we had a third. There, there. there it is. There it is. All right. <laughs> so after your, your time at with Chestnut and finishing up your degree at Eastman, um, you got your first with like full time, you know, big job, quote unquote. Um, and that was with uh, Kansas University, right? Correct. So what was, yeah, so what was your time like there? Well, that was um, really an, another fantastic opportunity for me. Um, I was actually, I found out about that job when I was on tour with Chestnut. And we stopped in Lawrence, which is where University of Kansas is. We were, we were on a Midwest tour. And um, we stopped in Lawrence and um, had dinner with Dave Vining who it's all very coincidental and this is how the business works, right? Dave Vining used to be in Chestnut. Then he got the, t the trombone job at University of Kansas. I get in Chestnut with a, you know, Dave's no longer in the group, but because of that connection, we were in Lawrence. And then he tells me that uh, when I'm in Lawrence that the trumpet job's gonna be open. And would I be, am I looking for work possibly? And, um, and I said, sure, um, I'm looking to move on. Um, you know, I've done my time here and living out of a suitcase isn't what I want to do anymore. Um, and so uh, I ended up uh, getting invited to the University of Kansas for that interview. Uh, the fit was really good. Uh, I had a great audition and they hired me. Um, I was very fortunate, uh, again, uh, to, to get gainfully employed. And this, yes, this was a large, lar much larger university um, that I taught at before. Um, and so we packed our bags and left Philadelphia and uh, moved to Lawrence, Kansas. And that was the next chapter. Uh, and that was my... Uh, like you say, first experience with having a larger studio. I think I had 15 trumpet students or something of that sort. And, um, dealing with a larger university environment and um, how all that worked. And um, our time in Lawrence was, was really great. Um, we really loved being in Lawrence. Uh, we were there for seven years. Um, I got to do a lot of playing with the Kansas City Symphony while I was there, made a lot of great relationships uh, with players in that area. Lawrence is a really great college town um, and it's close enough to Kansas City where you can go get big city life if you need it. Uh, our daughter was born in Lawrence, so uh, we have really great fond memories of being there. Uh, I made really great colleagues and friends and that I still have to this day. Um, and being at University of Kansas is kind of where I got, um, I was able to generate um, more or less, uh, it was the first time I was able to generate some national 
interest in my teaching and the studio. And I did that by putting together trumpet ensembles and taking them to ITG. And this was before NTC was doing their thing. And so that was, that was pivotal for me in my career, um, in, in the ability to put together groups that played well and take them you know, to national conventions. So then what, obviously after you left Kansas, you went to Florida State, right? Right. So what was that process like when that job came open and you're like, oh wow, full circle. Like yeah. take me through, take us through that process of like when you first found out that I was available and then now you have, you know, it's you and your wife and your, your daughter and you're like, oh man, like do we jump ship again? I mean, here we go taking yeah. a tour through America. <laughs> well, coming to Florida State was never my plan. That I never, that was never part of my plan at all to come back here. Um, we were, like I said, in my seventh year at Kansas, I had just gotten tenure. Mm. And the whole Grammy thing had happened. I got tenure, I was in a good place. Uh, I wasn't really looking for anything at that time. And I think that my wife and I both knew that this probably wasn't the last stop, that Kansas wasn't the last stop, but this wasn't, FSU wasn't what I was thinking was going to be the next stop. But the way that that worked is that um, Professor Goff um, knew that he was going to be retiring soon. And if you know Professor Goff, you know that he's a great planner and he leaves nothing to chance. And he really wanted someone that he knew that he wanted someone who was going to replace him who held the same ideals that he did. And he and I had stayed in touch. We'd seen each other every year at ITG and at NTC, and we had a very good relationship. And it was in that, it was like in 2002 that he said, what would you think about coming to FSU? And I just kind of said, well, that would be interesting. Sure. <laughs> so he kind of piqued my interest with that. And, um, you know, I think that he was, you know, vetting some people and just kind of seeing, feeling it out and seeing what might work. And uh, he likes, he, he says, and I think she agrees that, um, that Nancy, his wife is the one that really sealed the deal and said, Chris is the person that you need to have at FSU. <laughs> um, so what ended up happening is that uh, he was able to work it out so that he could invite who he wanted um, to interview for this job. And so he, when it came time for all that to happen, he, he said, well, why don't you come down and we'll have an interview and you can meet the rest of the faculty and see how you feel about it and see if you like it and we'll take it from there. And so I did, I flew out and I hadn't been back to Tallahassee in 20 years or whatever it was. And, basement smelled like the basement <laughs> on there and the halls all still look the same and uh, I had a, a good interview and um, 
couple days later, they offer me the position. And I weighed everything. Um, and it was just an opportunity that I knew I couldn't pass up. It was an institution that would give me greater access to greater talent, um, which is something I was looking for. It would give me access to graduate students. Um, it was warmer. <laughs> <laughs> and so it had a lot of, a lot of advantages uh, that I was not, that I did not have at my fingertips at Kansas. I loved being at Kansas, but it's very hard to recruit in Kansas uh, because the population base uh, just doesn't afford it. Um, there's many schools competing with the same students, so that you have, um, it just doesn't have the same uh, cachet that we have here, and it certainly didn't have the level of talent that I was really interested in uh, at that point in my life. So, so it was a no-brainer. So we packed the bags and moved to Tally. <laughs> and, uh, and the rest is history, as they say. But That's the, right. Yeah. The transition was, was different. Um, I was used to running my own show. And when I got here, I didn't. And that was okay, because it was Professor Goff's show. And that's fine. And, and he, was a, he was an incredible supporter and we worked as a team for the five years that we were together. And uh, I think that we, off, we, we supplemented each other and he trusted in me and he guided me, man. He, he, like I said, that man's got a plan. So he, he had a lot of plans for me, what I needed to do, how I needed to get tenure, uh, what were the hoops that I needed to jump through, what kind of things should I do to increase my viability. Um, you know, from presenting at Midwest to um, being becoming president of NACWAPI to, you know, all these things he encouraged me to do that provided me the opportunity to really, um, you know, perhaps uh, give me greater foundation for my place here at FSU. Awesome. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead. <laughs> I, I have a question. Uh, so since you've been uh, teaching at FSU, um, what are some of like the character, uh, characteristics or traits you look for in a student when they audition? And what do you think makes the FSU Trumpet Studio maybe unique in comparison to other places? Well, I would say um, I'll start with what makes us unique and I don't know if it makes us unique or not but I believe that we have here um, an incredible vibe that's kind of hard to describe but I think it's the camaraderie within the studio that really makes it what it is um, I think it all begins with the type of student that I recruit I'm looking for students who have uh, a team effort mentality. I'm looking for students who want to be here. To me, that is very important that they want to be part of what we have. Um, I'm looking for students who have great drive, great ambition, 
but as I said, our team players. Um, I make sure that the students that I vet and that I recruit leave their ego at the door. You can be a really fine player, but you need to speak with your horn and um, be a good person first. And to me, that's the most important. So I think we have an environment and, and guest artists who come here say all the time that the feeling here is really good. And so that everyone is supportive of each other regardless of what they do. Uh, this is something that I really demand is that we respect each other regardless of whether we're going to be music educators or we're going to be commercial music or we're going to be the next uh, great professor or if we're going to be in the next great military ensemble, whatever it may be, but that we're all supportive of each other in our endeavors. Um, and so I, I believe that's part of it is that we have that camaraderie um, and I believe that that really uh, is, is the, the pulse of the program, um, that we're all on the same page. And I think that, and, and you guys I know can share this, but I think part of it is my philosophy also that playing trumpet isn't world peace. This is, it's a really amazing opportunity that we have to make music and to share it with each other and to work at a high level, but it's not the end all. That it's, it's more about being good people and being good stewards of what you do and being able to share your talents and to do it with such great humility um, and do it at a high level, which I think is what makes it truly unique about being here is that it is at a high level and the demand is high the expectation is high, yet you still need to realize that at the end of the day, um, it's about more than it's about more than that. It's it's about more than being able to push down the right button and being able to play the tomber, you know. So uh, I I think that it's all about perspective, and I think that 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 helps maintain uh, a good balance in the studio. Now, in regards to, to what I look for in students, um, there's some single traits that I am looking for. And when, I, when, I, when I'm recruiting students, whether it be graduate students or undergraduate students, um, we meet face-to-face. -face. I interview these students that I want to be part of my studio. Um, they just don't come in and play and then I ask them to come be a part of the studio. I need to know who these people are and what makes them tick. Um, and so not only am I looking for great musicians, but I'm looking for a level of determination that is unmatched. Determination and ambition, um, desire, drive. Um, these are important aspects. I don't want to be having to pull a student through their degree program. That's not what I'm looking to do. I need students who have desire, who know where they want to be, who have great determination. And I think I'm, I'm at a, it's a luxury to be able to say that and I realize it because I've taught places where that isn't the case, where you take any warm body that you can because you're happy to fill your studio. 
but I'm in a position now where I can pick the students that I want to come be part of this program. And that's a luxury and I'm quite aware of that. Um, and I don't take it for granted. Um, but I'm looking for students who are willing to listen, willing to learn, uh, ones that have great curiosity, um, ones that have intelligence of practice. How, how do, if they can come in and they already are able to structure their time and their day and they already have an, um, an ability to kind of do that, that's going to help a lot right from the get-go. Um, they have to have talent and they need to be able to play beautifully. And that's really important to me. And grad applicants ask me all the time, what are you looking for in my audition? And the bottom line is I want, to, I want you to make great music. You don't, if you're not moving me in that audition, then it ain't gonna happen. So that's what I'm looking for. Cause that's the bottom line, right? Yeah, for sure. You gotta be able to do that. And so that's, that's, that's what I'm looking for on, on all level, undergraduate as well as graduate level. That's what I'm looking for. So like with your grad students that you pick, you know, what separates them? I know you, you think about like, you want them to be marketable. You want them to come in and they're not finished products. They're a work in progress, but you, you can see something. You can see like they have a future in the business. Like, like how should they prepare themselves? And like, what are these traits that you see within those students that you know, like, how do you know they're going to be successful or they got the goods for that? Well, what you're saying is hits the nail on the head. When, what I'm looking for in my graduate students, first and foremost, is employability. Um, because we don't have a lot of time, whether it's one or two years, as in like in your case, or, or with a doctoral student where we got three years, but I know that within two years, they need to put their tapes together and be applying for jobs. So first and foremost, they need to be at a level where we don't have to do a lot of work in regards to getting them in a place that I believe they will be competitive for the market. Um, there are many, many students who apply who are not ready for that yet. That, that the turnaround is gonna take much longer than two years or three years. And, and based upon my experience, I kind of know where that student needs to be in order that, that, um, that they are a, shall we say a pliable student, someone who we can fix some things pretty quick. Um, so in their playing, I'm looking for a high level of playing that, as I said, isn't going to take um, a, a do-over. Like, I, I, we're not going to have to deal with embouchure issues and, and things of that sort, but that they can play in tune and that they can play musically and that, that they have range um, and the ability to play soft and loud and the ability to uh, play with great excitement. And things that are easy to teach on the graduate level are things like um, uh, garnering greater ease in your playing. I know that we can do that pretty quickly. It's a concept, but we can do it. Um, we can do things like make your articulation better. Uh, these are things that I know we can do pretty quickly. Um, we can perhaps expand your range a little bit. Um, 
but as far as getting you to a point where I have to teach you how to make music, that's, I don't have time. Um, and so I'm looking for students who already have garnered that ability to do that. Um, now, in regards to them as people, they have to have determination. They have to have the ability to know, as I said at the beginning, that you're gonna get a lot more no's than yeses. And what are you gonna do with that? How do you handle that adversity? And are you gonna keep knocking on the door? Because you have to. And are you gonna take advice? And that's, you know, one of the key things is finding students who are humble and are willing to listen and are willing to change. You know, my job's not to turn you around, but my job is to guide you. And if you're not willing to listen to where I'm taking you, then we're not gonna, we're gonna spin our wheels. And way back years ago, you know, I've had grad students that have been very hard-headed. And unfortunately, it doesn't work. That's not what it's about. You're, you're coming here because you're looking for guidance to get a job. So you need to be open to whatever and, and willing to adapt and, and take the advice, you know? And so those are the students that I'm looking for. And those students are the ones that have the success. The ones who, um, first of all, identify that they have an unwilling, not unwilling, they have a desire that doesn't stop. They come to me with ideas, you know? They come to me with all the jobs that are open. They come to me with the audition lists. I'm not having to search around for them and help them find all this stuff. That's not, my job is to hear you play, give you advice. My job is to help you get a job. That's, I, and that's something I take very seriously. But you have to be employable. And you got to have this great desire and will to succeed. You have to realize that at first you may not succeed at what you want, but you know, you got a plan B that's going to carry you over. And I think that you can see that in every student that's out there that is comes from you guys' ilk, right? I mean, one great example right now is Joe Nibley. Joe Nibley left here without a job, but he hung in, man. That was it. That's what it's about. You got to hang in. You can't, you can't throw in the towel after a year and go, oh, this wasn't for me. You really want it. You'll get it. But you got to hang and you got to, and you got to believe and you got to trust. And these are all the things that I think that I try to impress upon all my students. You know, and I feel like if I could do it, anybody can do it. I really do. And I kind of think about why, why was I able to do it? So I look at all these things that I was able to do and I go, oh, I think there's something to that. So I try to impart that and hopefully a little bit of it helps. Well, I've, I've probably one more question before I should wrap up. It's, it's like I'm being back in your studio. I know, right? All these feelings. <laughs> I'm like, I'm ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> ready. Yeah, I'm ready to practice that. I know. Um, after 
other, you know, you've had a, a long, successful career. Um, what keeps you motivated at this point, and how do you manage like your your home life with you know your your job after all these years of teaching and playing and everything? Well, I would say um, managing your life. This is a that's a tricky thing, right? Because particularly when you're young, like you guys are, and you're climbing the, the, the ladder of success and developing your own great careers. Um, right now you have to dive in head first to your work, just like I did where I was working 80 hours a week and there was no end in sight. And I think that's just a natural progression of things. Um, I do believe in balance. I think that it's important that if you depending upon what your home life is, if you have a partner um, or you have a, a, a social network, I believe it's important that you maintain that and that you have some balance with that. I was very fortunate um, and am still very fortunate that my wife of almost 30 years now was game for whatever. Like all the places I lived, she was like, yeah, let's go, let's do it. It's like after I was here at FSU for like seven years, she's like, where are we going to go next? I'm like, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> we're not moving again. This, that's not going to happen. But, um, but having her being a willing participant and supporter of everything that I do was really, really important. and still is. Um, and fortunately for me, she works as hard, if not harder than me. And so we're both kind of a little bit tight. I don't really consider myself a type A, but we both, we both work hard. And, um, and so we have a good work ethic, yet I think that we also have a good balance with, I think I have a better balance now than perhaps I did when I was younger in um, not only practicing and teaching, but also other things in life. And having a child kind of does that for you. If you want to, you know, do it right, you need to spend some time with your family and, and figure out what kind of things can go by the wayside a little bit more than they did. So it's a matter of that kind of balance. Um, but it's tricky and it's hard. It's a challenge. It really is. Um, I have friends that are totally type A and bury themselves in work all day. And I'm, I'm not that kind of guy. I just can't do it. Um, so for me, I know when I'm getting a little bit burnt and it's time to walk away or, or leave it and go cook a meal or do something else rather than uh, play trumpet. Uh, but I think you figure that out over time. And, and I think also when you're young, again, you just want to work in it right you're in it you don't you don't see the end and so it's a matter of of developing that balance over time in regards to um what keeps me motivated i ask myself that question all the time because you know i'll be 55 this year and i've taught a long time and um staying motivated is important to me and my motivation right now comes from my students' success. 
I'd love to see you guys succeed. And it's all about everybody in the studio. It's not about me. It's about everyone succeeding. I don't care whether it's, you know, the three music ed kids that just graduated and are working out there to yourselves. You know, every time you guys get a job, I don't know if you notice, but you know, I only post on Facebook about my students. It's not about me. It's about what you guys do. And for me, that's motivation. That's what gets me going. And so when I'm, when I'm helping students with, you know, right now I got a number of doctoral students getting their audition tapes ready, uh, working on cover letters, making sure that they're prepared uh, for job openings that may come up. That's exciting to me. That's what I love doing. Um, getting my undergrads ready to be in great graduate programs, getting my undergraduates to win competitions or to get them to get in a summer festival they want to get in. That's exciting to me. Because when they achieve that, then you're like, oh yeah. You know? And that, that's the greatest reward for me. And that's, the motivation for me is, is all about my student success. And not only that, but they motivate me to maintain my playing at a high level because they show up and they bring it. And I better have an answer to that. And when I start feeling like I'm not quite up to that, then I need to put it in gear and I need to keep my own playing on top. And it doesn't get easier when you get older, that's for sure. So for me, that's what, that's what keeps me going. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think we're out of questions. That, that was a lot of great information, Dr. Moore. Um, so we want to thank you again for taking out time and sharing your story with us. Um, There's a lot of great information. A lot of the stuff I didn't know, even though we've, we've, I've known you basically my entire adult life. <laughs> um, but before we wrap up, we like to kind of do something on the lighter side. So, Dr. Mo, what, what are you listening to? So, are you in the car, are you jamming, or at home, hanging out? What was the last thing you, or what have you been listening to lately? Wow. All right, so I have to admit that I, I, I got a new car, and it oh. has Sirius FM in it, right? Oh, nice. So, there's a lot of channels that kind of look around and I'm kind of like checking out different kinds of music. So believe it or not, one of my favorite channels right now is classic vinyl. <laughs> okay. okay. Nice. <laughs> right? And I grew up like listening to Chicago and Earth, Wind and Fire and, and the Commodores and Cool and the Gang. Classic. And so, but now on classic vinyl is a lot of rock and roll. Like yesterday, I listened to some Led Zeppelin. Oh, nice. And I've never been a Led Zeppelin fan before, but I'm listening with different ears now. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of digging it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, like the, the classic rock and roll, I'm starting to, now I'm starting to look up names and who, who these guys were and kind of checking that out. And that was never really my bag, but now I'm, I'm starting to really like it, which is a little weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, to do that. Uh, my other favorite station, believe it or not, is um, Spanish music, uh, like 
caliente, like uh, like Miami based music, you know. Uh, nice. And so I listen to a lot of Spanish artists. Uh, I have no idea what they're talking about, <laughs> but you know, I've always I've always kidded with a lot of my students. I said when I retire. Uh, I'm gonna go to, I'm gonna move to Miami and play in a salsa band. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, my retirement plan. Of course, I don't think I want to live in Miami, but, <laughs> but I love all that stuff and I love the horn lines and I love salsa music and and uh, so that's probably like that's off the wall stuff. You probably think, oh man, is he listening to the the newest trumpet recording uh, or whatever? But I hear what you guys are listening to. <laughs> and, but I, the last podcast I listened to you guys were, uh, Tyler kind of turned me on to something that I think I'm going to try where he's like on, on, um, what was it? The, the playlist on Spotify where mm -hmm. they give you recommendations and all that kind of stuff. That seems pretty cool. So I was like, well, I'm gonna, maybe I'll try to check some of that out too. Yeah. So, There's a lot of good music out there these days. How about, how about you guys? What are you guys turned on to recently? Tyler, what are you listening to Tyler? Uh, so I've gotten into some more J. Cole. J. Cole. He's a, he's a rapper. Um, just trying to check his stuff out more and like listen to his story and what he's trying to say. And um, yeah, he's, he's got some pretty deep stuff. Um, so that and then listen to a little on the nerdy side, like a little Berlin Phil this week. Um, what did you listen to? What were they playing? Uh, oh, uh, Mahler. Oh. I was just like going through YouTube and I was like, what do I want to listen to right now? And I was mm. like, uh, let's check it out. Yeah, because uh, Hokan, he's, he's been doing the Charlier videos. Oh, right. And, and he stopped in like August and then he put another one out in the beginning of September and he's kind of going like every couple weeks. So I've been checking that out as well. Yeah. Awesome. What about you, Javian? Um. I'm listening to, well, recently I've been listening to um, uh, this artist. Her name is Emily King. She's a singer. Um, particularly, well, my favorite song from her, I guess it's her last album. It's kind of a few years old now, but it's called Distance. Um, she's kind of like not as known, um, but uh, she has some live recordings through um, NPR. And she's a really fantastic singer. I really love her vibes, kind of like this neo-soul R&B um, vibe to it. So I, I really, really enjoy her. And I guess on the, the nerdy side of things, um, what have I been listening to? Um, just different, you know, orchestral things that pop up on my YouTube feed. Um, nothing specific. Oh, I actually recently... I recently listened to a, cause I've, I've been looking up like different chamber pieces that are not as commonly played on trumpet. So I came across the, uh, the sing song uh, sextet um, for trumpet, piano, I think cello, uh, violin, viola. And it's actually a really cool piece. Um, so I've been listening to that cause I'm thinking I might wanna program that in the future, maybe next year or something. Um, so I'm really into that romantic music or music from that time period. So I recently listened to that. Yeah. Yeah. So good stuff. Good stuff all around. But before we say our goodbyes, I want to thank Dr. Moore again for being here and taking time out of his very, very busy schedule. Um, and we really, really enjoyed it. Um, and 
we want to thank you, you know, for having a cup of coffee with us today. Um, well, I and just, I just want to say how honored I am to be a part of your program. <laughs> and Tyler, with all of your editing expertise, you probably need to cut this way down. <laughs> No, it's great. I think there's so much information. Like, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, uninteresting stuff. But, um, and I also just finally want to say how proud I am of you guys. And, you know, when, when you talk about what motivates me, it's you guys motivate me. And it's just, it's so special. And I'm, I'm in a, I feel like I'm in such a privileged place to have the opportunity to work with you guys. Um, and I know that your friendship goes way back, and um, I, and I think that bond is is really something that I admire. And uh, you guys are what moves me, and I know that you're going to move others with all of of your actions and what you do. So I'm proud. I'm so proud of you guys. Oh, thank you, Doug. Oh, <laughs> we appreciate that. <laughs> So where can uh, people follow you on social media, Dr. Moore? Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, we gotta plug you. Gotta, gotta plug, plug you in the you. studio, right? You got a website or, okay. you know. So social... while we have the studio website, which does, it does work and has some good things to it, but needs to be updated. So we're, we're working on that, but it is www.fsutrumpetstudio.com. So that is easily found, and there you'll find a lot of information about the program and um, alumnus like yourselves, uh, the, the success stories of everybody. Um, the Trumpet Studio also has a Facebook page. There is a public Facebook page that everybody can follow. Um, thankfully, uh, with the help of one of my graduate students, Julia Bell, she kind of keeps the, the social media machine moving it forward uh, and, and posts updates. We have updates of studio members, new members. I think she's doing an alumni highlight now every week, which is pretty cool. Um, so that's, that's on Facebook. You can check out our studio page. We also have a um, Instagram and we also have Twitter. So our Instagram page is a lot more active than our Twitter, but you can certainly follow, I think it's at FSU Trumpets is the Instagram. So make sure you check that out. And that always has updates and things that are going on. My, I have a Twitter, what is it? <laughs> FSU Trumpet Prof? I think I that's think right. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Right? FSU okay. Trumpet Prof. I, I, I rarely post. So if you're looking for insights <laughs> from me, you're not gonna find it. So. Like I said, when it when it comes to social media, I really try to keep the studio out there and, and try to try to maintain that because I know how important that is now. Um, but in regards to uh, uh, bragging upon myself, I don't typically do that on social media. And, and like I said, it's about the students and and their success, and that's what I want people to know about us. I want people to know about you guys, and what you do. Uh, that. That brings success to the studio. Mm -hmm. awesome. So thanks for the plug. Oh, no problem. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Tyler, where can we find you on social media? Uh, Instagram, TylerDuncan91, and then Facebook, just by name, TylerDuncan as well. Yep. And Javian? You can find me at uh, on Instagram, NerdyProf, 
and Facebook, just my name, uh, JB and Brabham, and you'll see, not that I post a whole lot, but you'll see a few things there as well. Um, but I think we're done with our, our episode today. We want to thank you all for listening, and you can follow this podcast at Coffee and Clarks at Instagram, YouTube, and please subscribe and five-star us on Apple Podcasts. And we hope to continue putting out good content as much as we can. And without further ado, we want to say thank you again. And we'll see you all next time.